So the title of today's message, Catholicism's Ecumenical Heresy. There are a great many heresies in the Roman Catholic Church, and again, heresy versus error, heresy versus theological error. Theological error is bad. It is erroneous. It is problematic. Heresy damns the soul. This is theological error that takes you to hell. That is the difference. And once again, even the term heresy has fallen on hard times. There are those that see that term as too harsh, as too censorious, as too mean-spirited. And I would say it's harsh and mean-spirited to fail to define the true gospel from that which is heresy. It is hateful to fail to define the true gospel from that which is heresy. In my opinion, the ecumenical heresy of the Roman Catholic Church is a strong point, is a place that we should go regularly when seeking to reach our Roman Catholic neighbors. And in my experience, I have found my opinion to be true. I have found my Roman Catholic friends that I meet on the streets evangelizing, to be prepared to defend the transubstantiated Christ in the wafer, to be prepared to defend their baptismal regeneration. But I have found them less prepared to defend the ecumenical heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. I have found them often on their heels, a bit stymied, bothered by the doctrine of their church and their popes, that you do not have to be a Roman Catholic, that you do not have to participate in the Mass, that you do not have to be baptismally regenerated, that you do not have to have a Pope tell you your sins are absolved or one of his priests, that you do not have to confess Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form, and you can still go to heaven. I find... Many of my Roman Catholic friends challenged by the idea that their catechism and their popes and their priests teach that you can be a faithful Muslim and go to heaven. And so I want to equip you foremost to understand the gospel clearly and to hold to it dogmatically so you will see with absolute certitude that you must repent that you must confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that you must place your faith solely and only in Him and His finished work for salvation. And that outside of that salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, there is no other. There is no other. Outside of that salvation, there's only damnation. Outside of that salvation in Christ Jesus, there is only hell. There is only the certain, fearful expectation of an eternity under God's wrath, the due penalty of sin, including the sins of idolatry and unbelief. Catholicism's ecumenical heresy. Let us start by way of reminder, just touch on Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, we're not going to be there long, so stay in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. But can we not establish once again that you must repent of 
idolatry. You must repent of believing in a false God and confess the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and place your faith in Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. And the gospel involves the right God and the right means of salvation that that God has provided. So you must repent of your idolatry, worshiping false gods, and come in faith to the one true God, in particular God the Son, Jesus Christ, trusting in His finished work. As Romans 10.9 says, if anyone will believe in their heart, or if anyone confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and believes in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead, they shall be saved. And so the simplicity of Mark 1.15, the simplicity of the Lord Jesus' first recorded gospel message, repent and believe the gospel, is clarifying and powerful. Embrace it. Stand upon it. Do not budge from it. Be dogmatic. In fact, be bulldogmatic on Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. This is Jesus' message. This is our message. And no one is saved unless they have repented and believed the gospel. Fundamentally, Rome's ecumenical heresy says you do not have to repent and you do not have to believe the gospel. And you can and still will be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 is written by the Apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, to the church in Corinth. The Lord Jesus came, He preached, repent, and believe the gospel. He suffered for sinners. He pronounced to die. it is finished. He bowed His head, gave up His spirit. He was laid in a tomb for three days, but death could not hold Him. Up from the grave He arose. He conquered sin and Satan and death, and He ascended on high, to sit down at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then He sent His Holy Spirit as He said He would. And His Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to pen this truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Again, this epistle, this letter, is the church of Corinth. It's to a church. It is to men and women who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. They profess to be born again from above. They profess to be Christians. And yet, some of them are not. Some of them are not actual Christians. And some of them lack clarity in the gospel, they lack certitude. How clear do I want you? I want you so clear that you have an attitude. I want you to have certitude. To be certain. To be unbudging, unmoving. To have your feet 
firmly fixed on the rock of Jesus Christ. The Lord wanted the church of Corinth to have the same. Thus he wrote to them, do you not know? Now, when you say, do you not know, what does that kind of imply? You should know this. And tragically, here we are 2,000 years later, and you know what we have to say to a great many men, women, boys, and girls sitting in churches today? Do you not know? Tragically, if you showed up after church service today with a microphone in the hand and a camera to record it, and you said, do Roman Catholics go to heaven when they die? Do Muslims go to heaven when they die? In fact, you could even add this. Do good Muslims go to heaven when they die? They would say, well, I don't know. Or they would say, well, I think so. Or say, well, that's up to God. You know, we'll see. I wouldn't want to say. Or yes, they do. God is gracious. And none of those answers are biblical. And every Christian should be able to clearly answer this. I would consider it a failure if you cannot clearly answer this and you've been here for any amount of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And I'm here to tell you today that there are a great many, a vast number of professing Christians today who do not know that because their pastors have deliberately taught them the opposite. They have failed them. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that doesn't sound very gracious. That doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound very tolerant. That doesn't sound very broad-minded. That sounds very narrow. And so we don't want to say that. We want to be inclusive. We want to be tolerant. And so we don't want to say things like that. That sounds so judgmental. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And just to be clear, to inherit the kingdom of God is to go to heaven, is to be with God in His presence forever, in a new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells. Ah, only righteousness dwells with God in the new heaven and new earth. Hmm. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And if... The scripture stopped there. We might wonder, what's he talking about? Surely he's talking about that guy over there, that girl over there, that man, or that woman. Not about my particular issue or the particular issue of the people that I like and I want to think are right with God. I want to think they're in good standing with God and they'll be in heaven. And part of the reason I want to think that just because I want to be so big hearted and inclusive and accepting and loving, and I want them to think I'm so big hearted and inclusive and accepting and loving and part of the reason is, is just because I love myself, right? And I don't want them to think that I'm mean-spirited. And it seems mean, doesn't it, to say, look, my friend, you must repent. You must repent and confess Christ as Lord. You must believe the gospel or you're going to perish. You're going to abide under God's judgment. And we wouldn't want to be mean, but hear me, it's exceedingly mean to allow people to go confidently to hell thinking all the while they're going to heaven. That's not just mean. That's the height of hatred. To know the true God and the true gospel and to fail 
to declare and proclaim the true God and his true gospel while sinners are perishing all around you so you can have peace with them, so they can think you're nice while you're hating them? Well, that's evil, friends. May God guard us from such evil. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And so, this is written in such a way as to suggest that you should know this. And secondly, if you don't know it, to warn you that you're probably deceived. And that you need to come out from under that deception. There are some who will hear this later, who are deceived. And I pray, I trust, I hope none of you today came with the the deception ruling in your heart and mind that the unrighteous inherit the kingdom of God. But the Lord would free us from that deception. He would free us from that ignorance through this very scripture. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And we have a list of five sins coming out the gate. Say neither, none of these sinners are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Not if they continue in their current state anyway. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a list of particular unrighteous men and women. If this is their life, if this is who they are, not who they were, not what they fall into on occasion, but this is who they are. This is where they live. This is where they dwell. Then do not be deceived. You or they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Five sins coming out the gate, four of which are sexual sins. But right in the middle of these sexual sins is idolatry. Idolatry. And so fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, sodomy, all in there, all together. See, if this is who you are, if this is what you practice instead of practicing righteousness, think First John, then you're not born again from above. Christ is not your Lord, whatever you might call him. He's not your Lord. You need to repent of your repentance and start back at first base again and repent and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to think so is to be deceived or ignorant. Make no mistake. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church, along with many Protestant evangelical churches, is today saying that you can indeed be a fornicator, idolater, adulterer, homosexual, sodomite, thief, covetous, drunkard, reviler, or extortioner, and inherit the kingdom of God. And oddly enough, the Roman Catholic Church has dogmatically declared that you do not have to be a Roman Catholic, that you do not have to in any way associate with Jesus Christ, and you can indeed go to heaven. And they particularly point to Muslims and say that you can be a Muslim 
who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, who has put their faith in the false god Allah, and yet go to heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We have good news, saints. We have good news. Such were some of you. Any one of these sinners can be saved. Any individual who's caught up in a group of these sins, or let's say even in extreme case, all of these sins, indeed, the chief of sinners, can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But if they are saved, then you will not find them living in verses 9 and 10. You will find them living by the grace of God, by the power of God. You will find them living in verse 11. And until they are living in verse 11, you cannot count them as saved, nor can they count themselves as saved. And it's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's a blasphemy of Jesus' shed blood. It's a blasphemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ to say they are saved if they're still living in verse 9 and 10 and they have not, through the power of God, graduated to verse 11, which says magnificently, and such were some of you. That is amazing good news. Such were some of you. Were. What tense, saints? Past tense. Past tense. Such were. You see, this gospel is so glorious. It's so powerful. It saves you from the eternal wrath of God. It saves you from the penalty of sin. Praise God. And it saves you from the power of sin. You are no longer a slave of sin. Now, by the grace of God, you're a slave of righteousness. When you were a slave of sin, from time to time you did things, at least humanly speaking, that were good. Now, all of our deeds tainted with sin, pre-repentance, pre-faith, pre-salvation. Yet, you weren't as bad as you could have been by God's grace. Post-salvation, you've moved from a practicer of lawlessness as an unregenerate sinner, dead in sin and trespass, to a practicer of righteousness. Now that you've been born again from above, you have a change of character, a change of nature. It's not just you doubling down with your willpower. It's you in the power of the Holy Spirit being born again from above. You're no longer a slave. You've been set free. Now you might, in fact to some degree you will, go back from time to time and act like a slave. Go back and dabble in sin. And that's why there is sanctification the washing of the water of the Word, the renewing of the mind, growing in faith and love by God's continuing grace in your life. We do not preach, and this is not declaring in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, a holy perfection, this side of glory, or holy perfectionism. 
But praise God, there is a line in the sand. There's a radical difference. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that's why I say that if you're living in verses 9 and 10 and you say, hey, I'm a Christian, you are blaspheming the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Or if someone else is living in verses 9 and 10 and you say, oh, but they're a Christian. They're a Christian. You're blaspheming blaspheming the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. The blood of the Lamb has washed you. The Word of God has washed you. It's renewed your mind. But you were sanctified. You were set apart unto the Lord. Set apart unto Him. You once were Satan's. Now you're the Lord's. If you need more information on that, read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. What is the tense of all of those declarations? Past tense. Washed, sanctified, justified. And some want to say, oh yeah, I'm justified, I'm saved. And skip right on over such were some of you, washed, were washed, were sanctified, but no, I am justified. You can't confidently, biblically say, he, she, I am justified, unless there's a reality by the grace of God that such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. See, his name has power. His very name means Savior. And again, he saves you from the penalty of sin and hell, and he saves you from the power of sin. Now, you're no longer a slave of sin. You've been born again from above, which was what Jesus preached to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And when you are born again, when you're regenerated, you have a new nature. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We're not just telling people, try harder. No, we're saying saying to them, you must be born again, which is what Jesus said. And if you're born again, there are evidences thereof. And if there's no evidences of you being born again, meaning you still live in verses 9 and 10, then cry out to God that He would regenerate your dead soul. And we'll cry out to God for you. But we can't call you a Christian. And we can't say you, were, you will be in glory. You will be in heaven. You are saved. Because you're still an idolater. You're still a fornicator. You're still an adulterer. You're still a thief. Anyone know any thieves that put on a good show of being a Christian for a while? Anyone? Judas looked pretty good, didn't he? We always picture Judas like you picture Pigpen on Charlie Brown with kind of dirt flying around him and bugs and stuff. And you picture him as being kind of dark-eyed and shifty. Now, they trusted Judas with the money bag, which made it real easy for him to steal from it continuously. 
They sent Judas out two by two, and somebody had to partner with Judas. And, you know, the disciples humbled themselves often in the recorded Gospels. I'm quite certain if they suspected him, somebody would have said, I don't want to go with Judas, and it would be right there for us to read. No one suspected him. And in the upper room, when the Lord Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all point at Judas. And yet Judas had this secret sin. And it owned him because the Lord Jesus did not. Jesus was not his Lord. He was not born again from above. He was a false convert. And thus, he was a thief. And it destroyed him. It destroyed him. He gave up his soul for a handful of silver. How tragic. And so, we must love our neighbor by upholding the true gospel. And the true power of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners to save them from the penalty and the power of sin and to uphold the true power of the Holy Spirit to say you must be born again. And when you are, praise God, you are regenerated. You have a new nature. You are no longer a slave to these sins. Such were some of you, but you were washed, praise God. You were sanctified, and thus were confident that you were justified. By the way, were justified. That's not very Roman Catholic either, is it? Past tense, once and for all, justified by grace alone, faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not through sacraments and ongoing sense. Now what does the Catechism of the Catholic Church say, paragraph 1129 says, The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. You think, well, that's not very ecumenical, Pastor. But wait, there's more. It goes on to say, Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ and, and proper to each sacrament. Sacramental grace, which again is contrary to 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. But you were justified, past tense, done finished in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. They show up and say, the church affirms for believers that the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace, ongoing, doled out grace, sacrament by sacrament, mass by mass, is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. Now there's a qualifier in that statement that perhaps you didn't catch. The church affirms that for believers, so for Roman Catholics in particular, and for those pesky Protestants whom they have pronounced anathema upon again and again and again for saying that salvation is by grace alone and not works. Salvation is through faith alone and not works. Rome pronounces the anathema Eternal judgment upon those pesky Protestants because their doctrinal statement, their dogmatic declaration is that the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary. And yet it goes on to say in paragraph 847, the catechism says this, outside the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation. What? double-minded in all their ways. And then it continues to say, quote, this affirmation is not aimed at those who through no fault of their own do not know Christ and His church. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, 
but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, trying their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. And so the Roman Catholic Church, double-minded and unstable in all its ways, declares that there's no salvation outside of the church, and then immediately declares this is not aimed at those who through no fault of their own. So it's a no-fault salvation. Isn't that a nice clause? Like no-fault marriage? No-fault divorce, excuse me. This is no-fault salvation. I know some of you ladies think you're in a no-fault marriage. My husband has no faults. No faults. God bless you. So this affirmation is not aimed at those who through no fault of their own do not know Christ and His church. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and are moved by grace, trying their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. So who is saved according to the official Roman Catholic catechism? Roman Catholics... And all good Muslims, Jews, Hindus, atheists, but not Protestants who know the gospel and thus deny the false gospel of Rome. We've got anathema for those Protestants. But for everyone else, you're probably going to make it too. You're going to be okay. Thus says the Catechism of Rome. In particular, paragraph 841 of the Catechism says, quote, The church's relationship with Muslims, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge, on the last day. It's interesting that the only world religion they pick out, in particular, is that of Islam. Who might you go to first if you wanted to be broad-minded, if you wanted to say, broad is the way to heaven, and many go thereby, which would seem to contradict someone, oh, the Lord Jesus. If you wanted to declare that, who might you include first? How about the Jews first? Now, they don't do that. Why? Because the Jews aren't trying to kill them. And the Muslims have been a threat to mankind, generally speaking, and to Roman Catholics particularly, for many centuries, even to this day. And so they pick out Islam and say, look, we want peace with you guys. Please don't kill us. If you're nice, you can actually go to heaven. If you don't kill us, you can still worship Allah. You can still call the false prophet Muhammad a true prophet. You can still claim salvation through prayers on Friday in the mosque. You can still deny the deity of Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, and you can go to heaven. Just be good Muslims. Please don't kill us. What does the Lord Jesus say to that? Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Enter by the narrow gate, Christ alone. 
for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. That's Rome's ecumenical way. It's the broad road of destruction that they have declared in their official binding doctrinal statement, their own catechism, is another way of salvation. Sans Christ. Without Christ. No need for Jesus. Just be good people. Just be a good Muslim and don't kill us. Just be a good Jew. Just be a good atheist. Just be nice. The bumper sticker, back of the car, turns out that's actually Roman Catholicism summed up. Be nice. That's it. Be nice. You go to heaven. That's it. That's all you got to do. Be nice. What's the problem? Are there any good Muslims? Are there any good Jews? Are there any good atheists? No. What does the Word of God say? All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What does the Word of God say? No one does good. No, not one. What does the Word of God say? There are none righteous. No, not one. Huh. So it would seem like they did not build their doctoral statement on the foundation of holy scriptures. Rather, they built it on their unholy, uninspired opinions, and thoughts, feelings, desires to survive, perhaps, in light of the fact that they pick out Muslims to say, hey, we like you guys. You too can go to heaven. We're not even going to pressure you to repent of your idolatry and to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. No, no. You're just fine. We love you. Take care. We'll be over here. How far does this go? Pope Francis is reported by the Catholic News Service in an article titled, Don't Be Afraid That God Has Allowed Different Religions in the World. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Well, I wasn't afraid. But he wants us to be you know, comfortable with there being different religions in the world. And so it says, no one should be afraid that God has allowed there to be different religions in the world, Pope Francis said. But we should be frightened if we're not doing the work of fraternity, of walking together in life as brothers and sisters of one human family. And so don't be afraid if you're of a different religion or if they're of a different religion. Nothing to fear there. Be afraid if what? If we're not nice. If we're not acting like we're one human fraternal, brotherly family. So there's no fear about having the right God and the right gospel. Forget that. That's, that's old-fashioned. That's nonsense. Just be nice. That's what the Pope says. As is customary at his general audience, April 3rd, the first after his March 30th through 31st trip to Morocco, Pope Francis reviewed his visit and said this, people might ask themselves, why is the Pope visiting Muslims and not just Catholics? Catholics and Muslims are both, quote, descendants of the same father, Abraham, he said. And the trip was another step on a journey of dialogue and encounter with our Muslim brothers and sisters. Our Muslim brothers and sisters. Let's think, what context did the Bible use the term brother and sister? Those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who could claim to be in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you. Those are brothers and sisters in Christ. How did Muslims get there? Is that a wee compromise of the gospel? It is a vast compromise of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In particular, Muslims, our brothers and sisters. He goes on to say in another article from the Catholic News Service, 
titled Five Lessons from Pope Francis' Commitment to Muslim-Catholic Dialogue. And this is from March 3rd, 2023. It says, In his first days as the head of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis said, quote, It is not possible to establish true links with God while ignoring other people. Hence, it is important to intensify dialogue among the various religions. And I am thinking particularly of dialogue with Islam. It's always particularly Islam particularly Muslims, first of which Muslims. The Pope has more than lived up to that early goal he set for himself. Engagement with Muslims has become one of the hallmarks of his papacy. Over the past decade, the Pope has made dozens of visits to Muslim communities and Muslim-majority countries. He has forged bonds with leaders and ordinary believers, and he has repeatedly drawn attention to the presence of God in the experiences of Muslims and in many of the riches of their faith tradition. So they're genuinely experiencing the one true God, so says the Pope. From his many gestures, statements, trips, and most significantly, his personal encounters with Muslims, some profound lessons emerge. Here are just five. Worshiping together the one merciful God. That's number one. Worshiping together the one merciful God. Stepping onto a small red prayer rug and socked feet, Pope Francis folded his hands and bowed his head. He was visiting a mosque in the war-torn Central African Republic in 2015 and wanted to take a moment to pray in silence. The year before, in a visit to the famed Blue Mosque in Istanbul, Turkey, the Pope asked the city's Grand Mufti to pray for him. Can you ask a Muslim to pray for you? No, why? Because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus Why is the Pope comfortable asking Muslims to pray for him? Because he's already rejected the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He already has Mary and a host of other mediators. And so he's happy to have a Muslim who has rejected the deity, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only mediator, to pray for him. And later in a trip to Bangladesh at an interreligious gathering, Pope Francis asked a Muslim individual a Rohingya refugee from Myanmar, to offer up a prayer on behalf of the group. Later, the Pope said that the encounter brought him to tears. In each of these prayerful moments, Pope Francis has put to practice the church's teaching, affirmed at the Second Vatican Council and echoed in the Catechism. So this is the church's teaching from the Second Vatican Council, the authoritative Council of Rome, and its authoritative Catechism, Quote, that Muslims together with us adore the one merciful God. Muslims together with us adore the one merciful God. Oh, brothers and sisters, no, they do not. They worship an idol. The God they call Allah, the God of the Quran, is an idol. A bloody, murderous idol that did not send his son, the second person of the Trinity, to die upon a cross for sinners, that did not send the Holy Spirit to regenerate sinners and illuminate their eyes to his holiness, their sinfulness, and the glory of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. No, the God of Islam is an idol, the creation or fabrication of Muhammad's mind and perhaps a demon that he called a jinn that he met in a cave according to his own testimony. The article continues, 
Though there are certainly doctrinal differences between the Christians and Muslims, this does not preclude us from acknowledging the similarities we do have or from coming together along with Jews and even others to praise and petition our common God. Having made God's mercy an important theme of his papacy, Francis has purposefully drawn attention to the fact that for Muslims, mercy is one of God's most important attributes too. Francis is not the first pope to make statements or take actions like these. St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI also prayed publicly with Muslims in different capacities. In doing so, they all signal that Muslims' prayers to God are valid and that they are directed to the same merciful God whom Catholics also strive to serve. Hear me, I have spoken to you and warned you about praying with Roman Catholics, saying that when you pray with them, if you should, you're saying to them that their relationship with God is valid, that their salvation is valid, that they have the right to go before God into His holy presence even though they are not saved, even though they're happy to pray to Mary instead of to God through Jesus Christ, the one mediator, and that we cannot do that. And here, the Catholic Church is telling us that their popes, their last three popes, specifically have prayed with Muslims to signal to them, to tell them that they have a relationship with the one true God. So the first lesson of the five lessons from Pope Francis regarding Muslims was that, hey, we worship together the one merciful God. The second lesson is this, doing theology together, acknowledging the wisdom of the other. So we do theology together and we learn from each other theological truths. So toward the end of his encyclical, his teaching, Pope Francis wrote about the importance of developing a sacramental imagination, of seeing God in nature and in our fellow human beings. In making this point, the first source that the Pope cites is not a Christian mystic, but a Muslim one. He cites a Muslim mystic as a theological source of truth. In the associated footnote, Francis quotes a Muslim poet who wrote in the 16th century about perceiving God when the wind blows, when flies buzz, when doors creak, when birds sing, or in the sound of strings or flutes, the sighs of the sick, the groans of the afflicted. Though the footnote is buried in a long document, its inclusion in the encyclical is groundbreaking. This was the first time in the history of the Catholic Church that a non-Christian religious sect was cited in an official teaching document. The first non-Christian cited is a Muslim mystic. Muslims elevated even up beyond Jews. Didn't quote a rabbi. Didn't quote a Mormon. Didn't quote a Jehovah's Witness. Didn't quote a Hindu. Or to the Muslim. For the sake of time, let's skip to the third point. Sitting with the saints next door or around the world. During his 2021 trip to Iraq, Pope Francis visited another major Muslim leader, this time from the Shia branch of Islam. The Grand Ayatollah is a globally revered leader, but despite his high profile, he lives in a modest home. 
Like Pope Francis, the elderly man is known for his humility. There are a few details about the Pope's time spent with Al-Sistani, but Francis said afterward that, quote, this meeting did my soul good. He is a light. These wise men are everywhere because God's wisdom has been spread all over the world, unquote. Francis went on to frame Al-Sistani as an, quote, everyday saint, one of the, quote, saints next door, people who live out their values with coherence. And so Muslims are saints, the saints next door. This is the Pope of Rome. And again, it's not unique to Pope Francis, Pope Benedict before him, Pope John Paul before him made similar compromises. The fourth point of this article, the other could be you, defending the dignity of all. Kneeling over a basin, Pope Francis poured cool water over a man's feet and wiped them dry with a white towel. He was performing a Holy Week ritual that is usually reserved for Catholics, but he chose to include people of other faiths, including Muslims, as a gesture of universal solidarity. For Francis, dialogue spills over to acts of service. The other could be you. Elevating your neighbor into a position of salvation as a brother, that's heresy. And this is what I've said many times to Roman Catholic priests, missionaries, and average Catholics, is you don't even believe. If you believe your catechism, you don't even believe your Roman Catholic sacraments. You're double-minded in all your ways because your popes are, because your bishops are, because your binding theological documents are. It makes you double-minded and unstable in all your ways. And it sets you directly against Christ, who says that salvation is only through Him. And you claim that salvation is in Jesus Christ. Now, you have a different Christ. You've made Him to be a wafer. And you have a different gospel, a gospel of works, not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. But then you simultaneously say, or others, it's through Christ, or whatever. Just be a good person. Be a good Hindu. Be a good Muslim, in particular. Be a good Jew. Be a good atheist, be a good homosexual, and you too will find salvation. And you have set yourself against Christ, doubly so, in that you deny the true Christ, you deny His true gospel in your Roman Catholic doctrine and sacraments, and then you include ecumenically a whole host of unbelievers, in particular Muslims, and say they too are saved, sans Christ. Sans sacraments, sans church, they too are saved. The fifth point of the article, it's not fair and it's not true. Resisting stereotypes. I find this one interesting. Pope Francis has repeatedly called on Western countries to set aside anti-Muslim scapegoating. And many of his public comments have been a helpful corrective to the dominant global discourse on Islam. For example, in 2016... Francis urged his audience to resist the tendency to reduce the causes of violence committed by Muslims to religion. It's not fair, quote, he says, it's not fair to identify Islam with violence. It's not fair and it's not true. The Pope is a liar so many times over. But that is a colossal lie. You only need to do a cursory study of the evening news, history, or the Quran, and what you find is, the founder of Islam, Muhammad, the book of Islam, the Quran, the followers of Islam throughout history and to this current day have all been bloody jihadists. You find that the book teaches it and upholds it, even commands it and demands it from adherents 
of Islam. And so that's just patently untrue. It's a bold-faced lie. He has made himself a protector of Islam. From the Catholic Answers website, we get this in an article titled, How Muslims Can Get to Heaven. This is the Catholic Answers website. Question, can Muslims go to heaven? Answer, it is possible. Although they wouldn't be saved on account of their distinctive Muslim beliefs, all salvation comes by Jesus Christ and through His one Catholic Church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church elaborates on the possibility of eternal salvation for non-Catholic Christians and non-Christians. How are we to understand this affirmation? Often repeated by the church fathers, reformulated positively. It means that all salvation comes from Christ, the head, through the church, which is his body. Again, we get this double-mindedness. So yes, no, yes. He continues. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. He is present to us in his body, which is the church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. This this affirmation is not aimed at those who through no fault of their own do not know Christ and His church. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and are moved by grace, try in their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those too may achieve eternal salvation. And of course, he just quoted the catechism. So he said, yes, no, yes double-minded in all his ways. Now, that claim of ignorance, who through no fault of their own, so they're ignorant. I've done this many times, but the first time was with an elderly, retired Catholic monk missionary. So he'd spent his entire life as a missionary, and he now was living out his last days as a monk over at the grotto. A sweet old man, wicked, mind you, in that he's an antichrist. He preaches another gospel. He's helped damn a multitude of souls. But I read the catechism regarding Muslims, and I said, Sir, do you understand that according to that, your life was not only a waste as a missionary, but a danger to the souls of men? Because it would be better to leave them ignorant. Because if you show up as a Catholic missionary, and you say, look, you should leave Islam and come to Jesus Christ through the sacrament of baptism, through the Church of Rome, and be saved. And they say, no, I reject the Roman Catholic Church. I reject its baptism. I reject its Jesus Christ. Jesus is not God. I hold to Allah and the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad. Well, now he's damned because you have told him the good news of Roman Catholicism and he has rejected it. And so you not only have nullified all of what you see as your good works, your life, how you've spent your life, but you've made it to be evil. It'd be far better to cancel all missions, to never send another Catholic missionary anywhere, to get off the radio stations, to stop declaring your your Catholic truth in your eyes, lies in mine, lies in the eyes of God, to stop declaring them over the radio waves because you're endangering the hearts of multitudes of atheists and Hindus and Muslims 
who otherwise is just basic good people, will go to heaven. And you know what he said? With a smile and, and a warm heart, he said, you ask tricky questions. And I said, sir, it's not a tricky question. It's the simplicity of the gospel, which your doctrine, your catechism, your popes contradict, and they make your whole life to have been meaningless or worse, evil. As you went forth declaring the so-called truths of Roman Catholicism, and some people no doubt rejected it, and thus their souls are damned. You should have just stayed home. Tricky questions. I'll have to think about that. Oh, sir, won't you repent? Won't you repent? Confess Christ as Lord. Turn from this madness. What does the Word of God say? I asked him, what does the Word of God say about the so-called innocent atheist or the innocent Muslim who doesn't know any better, the ignorant, they don't know any better? Well, it says this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus Christ coming return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. I said, sir, where do you find ignorance as an excuse in the Bible? You don't. You find the wrath of the Lamb coming for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You find the wrath of God announced upon them. In Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Remember those two words, without excuse. What does the Catholic Catechism say? By no fault of their own. Those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ or of His church. Does anyone fall into the no fault category? Not according to the Bible, saints. Why? Because God has revealed Himself through creation. As Psalm 19 says, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where His voice is not heard. And then Romans 1 shows up and says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God says that He has shown Himself to them. God says, I've revealed Myself to them and they have rejected Me. And therefore, there are no men, no women who fall into a no-fault category. Instead, they fall into the category of without excuse. Romans 1 verse 20. And thus, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, describing the return of Jesus with judgment, says He comes with flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. It's not an ignorance of God. It's a suppression of the truth of God. 
They have not bent their knee to him and confessed him as Lord. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ignorance of God doesn't exist. Suppression of the knowledge of God that has been given to you through creation, that is the common disposition of all men and women until they come to repentance and faith in Christ. Rejecting the gospel is not the other means of salvation. Well, I'll just reject it. I just didn't know about ignorance of the gospel. I'm just ignorant of it. No, if you do not obey the gospel, the Lord Jesus is coming with fiery vengeance. Oh, saints, Roman Catholicism is so far from God. It is so heretical. It can't even get John 3.16 right. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. They can't even get Romans 3.18 right. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. They can't even get John 3.36 right. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides, already abides upon them. They can't even get Revelation 21 verse 8 right. Less known than John 3, mind you. Nevertheless, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now this is less known than John 3.16, 3.18, 3.36, but this is the clear declaration of those who will abide in hell. It is a particularly pointed text. These people will be in hell. And by the way, it's very similar to the first two verses we covered in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9 and verse 10 are almost identical. Do not be deceived. These folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it gives a list of sinners. And here we find in Revelation 21 verse 8, the very same in almost exact detail. Revelation 21.8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And that is tragic, but just. And God is holy and bringing that justice upon them. It's tragic that we would tell unrepentant idolaters, unrepentant sinners of all sorts and kinds, Atheists, agnostics, Hindus, Mormons, that they too can be saved outside of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That is a satanic lie. That is a direct contradiction of the Lord Jesus warning that the road is narrow and few shall find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And Rome shows up and says, the road is not narrow. All sorts of people are finding this road under all sorts of titles and religions. It's broad. Isn't that good news? And they say it with papal authority as the Pope of Rome. They say it with priestly authority as his Antichrist priests. They say it with catechism authority. Thus saith Rome, binding up souls, not just Roman Catholic souls, Muslim souls, atheist souls, homosexual souls, under these doctrines of demons and damning them to hell. This is the 
ecumenical heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. Let me close by saying this. The exact same argument they make to say Muslims and atheists are saved too, they're going to heaven too, based upon the good deeds we see in their life, is the argument that Doug Wilson makes about Roman Catholics. G.K. Chesterton in particular. Yes, G.K. Chesterton rejected the gospel. Yes, he's an enemy of the gospel. He rejected salvation by faith alone. But I look to his life and I see the Holy Spirit at work. Therefore, I know he's saved anyway. That's another gospel that is not another. That's the spirit of Rome and its catechism. That's not the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, or the spirit-inspired holy scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it shines like diamonds on the black backdrop of Rome's heresies. We thank you, Father, for the simplicity and power of the gospel that we must repent and believe the gospel to be saved. I pray, Father, that you would grant us love for you and love for perishing sinners of all sorts and kinds, that we would stand resolute, stand firm against this broad road doctrine, against this ecumenical heresy, and preach, Lord, the one true Christ and his glorious gospel, that our friends and neighbors and family members would be truly, radically, magnificently saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.